Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick Anderson. Before I introduce my guest today, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, my former hometown hospital, on the recent event of delivering the first baby in the United States born from a transplanted uterus from a deceased donor. This is only the second baby in the entire world who was born through this method. And I just want to give kudos to the Cleveland Clinic for their cutting edge and innovative techniques. If you listen to all of my episodes, you may recall episode number 13 called Penile Transplants, Plasma Therapy, and Human Tissue Engineering. In that episode, I highlighted how biomedical engineering is a growing field and how it can improve sexual functioning and reproduction. I discussed innovations in penile and uterine transplants in that episode and how these surgeries can restore fertility and function in both men and women. So I just wanted to keep you abreast of the cutting edge and innovative things that are happening in the world of sexual health and sexual medicine and kudos to the Cleveland Clinic. I want to move on now and talk about my guest for today. Her name is Dr. Marnie Fjorman. She recently published a book called Ghosted and Breadcrumbed, Stop Falling for Unavailable Men and Get Smart About Healthy Relationships. In her book, she talks about why women find themselves in relationships with unavailable men, what some of the dynamics are, and how to get out of those relationships. She and I, however, focused in our interview about certain concepts such as attachment theory, or psychological boundaries that were established in your family of origin. We talked about this notion of limerence, which we explain in the interview. We talk about the concept of emotional intelligence and how the more people, and in this case women, understand about their particular attachment style and attachment theory generally, and the more they understand about boundaries, and the more they are aware of the characteristics of emotional intelligence and some of the uh, neurochemical dangers of the limerence stage of falling in love. The more that women understand about all these processes, the better they will be at avoiding relationships with unavailable partners or married partners. We talk about her list of dating do's and don'ts. We also talk about some iconic or classic types of men who are reticent to commit and what those types are. So I hope that you will find this interesting. I am very excited to play my interview for you. Let's get sex savvy. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Marnie Feuerman. 
She's a licensed psychotherapist, nationally recognized expert in relationships and sexuality with special training in couples counseling. Dr. Marnie, welcome to Sex Savvy. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you. I just finished your book last night, and what struck me the most is how like-minded we are and how a lot of the things that you mention in your book and refer to as part of your diagnostic protocol and your treatment protocol are things that I also weave into my work. So I'm just thrilled to talk to someone who is so like-minded. So it's great to have you. Great. I'm so happy to hear that. It means a lot when I hear from other professionals where a lot of what I've written has resonated with them or it's similar to how they practice. So it's wonderful to hear that. Well, it's so true and kudos to you. Thank you. So tell my listeners why you chose to write about this particular topic. I know that writing a book is a labor of love (laughs) and there are so many options and choices in our field. Why ghosted and breadcrumbed? That's a great question. I get asked that quite a bit. I wrote the book because I do a lot of online writing. So I have a lot of work out there already. And so you can gather some data. You can see what people are clicking on, what they're sharing, what your numbers are like. And so it seemed as if I was getting a lot of views of articles that were based on this topic. One of them was actually about women who are involved in a relationship with a married man. So they're affair partners. Another one was women in emotionally abusive relationships, or actually people in emotionally abusive relationships. So I knew that there were elements of that, that people felt that they could relate to, and that maybe there was more that I could offer people. Luckily, I mean, if people can go get psychotherapy and can afford it, wonderful. But I wanted some information out there, you know, and a self-help book is a relatively inexpensive product where I could put all this information, a lot of what I've learned from working with clients, both individuals and couples that I could really integrate what I know and people could easily access this information. And then on another side of it was, of course, my own experiences, because I went through a lot when I was dating and I was looking for love and I made a lot of mistakes and bad choices and I had to figure it out. So it was also my own journey. And so those things really came together and it just felt natural to write this book. Well, it makes sense that there's a personal piece to it because it felt very authentic. Oh, thank you. Good. I'm glad that comes across. And it sounds like you wrote this because your audience was asking for it, really. You responded to the feedback that you were getting and looking at your algorithms in your online writing. And this clearly was a topic that people were thirsty for guidance on. Yes, exactly. Great. And I see in my work, very similar themes and trends. And I will be recommending your book. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Great, great. So there were a couple of general concepts that jumped out at me that I use in my work. And the notion of falling in love or what is scientifically referred to as the limerence stage, that you talk about that in your book as well. Yeah. And how when people are in that stage, they're really under the influence of chemicals. And the part of the brain that lights up is the same part of the brain that lights up on MRI when someone's severely mentally ill. (laughs) 
Yes, or high high on drugs, yes. Or high on drugs, right? That dopamine rush. And so can you talk a little bit about your understanding of the role of limerence and how that maybe sets people up to find themselves in situations that in the end are not healthy for them? Sure. I think limerence is also what we commonly know as infatuation or lust. Those are some other words for it as well. And the thing is, like, just like what you said, the rational part of our brain, the part of our brain responsible for judgments, is really offline. We're completely encapsulated, I would say, in the attraction and the chemistry. And so those are wonderful feelings. And so I don't want to take that away from people. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, but what I do want people to remember is that they probably have to make more of a concerted effort to bring that rational part of their brain online as well. So you can feel the feelings associated with those early stages of love. But you should be asking yourself a lot of questions. You know, is this person a good match for me? Do we share values? Do we share goals? Are they reliable? Are they consistent? Do they call when they say they're going to call? Am I ignore or disregard important information because it's going to mess up our love feelings. Exactly. You're going to want to pay attention to everything. And you could be making one of the most important decisions of your life. So if you're a person looking for commitment, looking for someone to have kids with, whatever your goals are, it's a very, very important choice. And so we want to make sure that we keep that other part of our heads that kind of fade into the background, that we're keeping that front and center as well so that we can make better choices. That is so well said. I know that people in that stage tend to overlook the red flags because they want a green light. So they give themselves green and they ignore stop signs and flashing yellow lights. So I love that you wrote that in your book because it's something I talk to my patients about all the time for them to kind of be aware of, yes, this is wonderful. This is your lizard brain. This feeling of infatuation and intoxication is so gratifying. Yes. But And then there's that but, and like you said, I don't want to take that away from people, but that can't be the sole primary basis for which to judge a compatibility and fitness of a relationship. Right. Absolutely. I mean, imagine you were drunk or high and somebody came to you and said, I want you to make an extremely important decision right now. I mean, you um, It's exactly right. But we do make these decisions all the time when we're feeling the high, but we need a lot of time to make a conscientious decision and not just like flow with the feelings. Absolutely. That's so great. So another area that you address in your book is attachment. Yeah. And I use a lot of attachment theory in my practice as well. Can you give just a a superficial overview, and I'll refer people to your book who want more in-depth understanding, just touch loosely on the main attachment styles? I love this topic. In psychology, and when we talk about attachment or attachment theory, which some of your listeners have probably heard that term before, we're talking about a very well-proven theory in psychology. And attachment is about early patterns that we develop in our family. So the people that initially take care of us, usually it's a mother, but you know, a parent, a caregiver, whoever it is. And so it's about that bond that connects us to that person. And so 
you know, you typically have it when you first come out of the womb because we can't take care of ourselves. We're entirely dependent on somebody. And so we know that the quality of that bond can really vary. We could have a caregiver who is extremely responsive to us, who is very consistent, meets our needs, helps us uh, make sense of the world and different things that happen to us. And we know that it exists on a continuum. And so it could be very poor as well. It could be non-existent. There could be neglect, abuse. And so that influences us. And we really didn't know this at first. So when they started studying attachment, it was mainly between the child and the caretaker. And then we figured out later on that your attachment system is reactivated in adult romantic relationships. And so you develop this template for what you expect from somebody, um, what you look for, what you think is going to happen. It affects how you process emotion, how you make sense of things, how you see yourself. You know, sometimes we tend to repeat the same sort of dynamic that we had over and over and over. For example, abandonment, like if you had somebody who wasn't there for you or abandoned you early, you might have a deep-seated fear that the person that comes into your life later on, a romantic partner, is going to abandon you. So that's just one sort of example. Yeah, that's great. I love how Esther Perel puts it. She says, tell me how you were loved and I'll tell you how you love. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard that one before, but yes, exactly. Such a simplistic but powerful sentence. Tell me how you were loved and I'll tell you how you love. So yes, so I think attachment sets up the potential for what's called repetition compulsion, Mm -hmm. where people reenact things over and over again subconsciously in the hopes of resolving some old womb or trauma and kind of getting it right and sort of riding the ship if it gets off course. So I love that you talk about attachment. I love that you talk about limerence. Let's talk about how boundaries from your family of origin affect the boundaries you carry into adulthood. Yeah, in the book, I want people to get this deeper understanding about what we call the family of origin, the family you were born into. And boundaries are what separates you from somebody else. And as we know, parents can really vary on how they handle that. Sometimes a parent just sees the child as an extension of themselves. And then we have a situation that we refer to as enmeshment, or they rely or depend on the child for their emotional needs, which then of course is not an appropriate boundary. There's different ways that maybe that could go wrong that are going to impact you in your day life later on. So we want the children to basically understand that, you know, the parent is, and I think attachment plays into this, the secure base safe haven sort of concept, which is that the parent is teaching the child, I'm always here for you if you need me. But because of that safety that I've given you, you can explore the world as well and feel good independent because you know that you have this secure base to come back to as you explore the world and develop some sense of of independence. And so that really has to be very balanced. And it doesn't mean that some parents are going to make some mistakes and it doesn't have to be perfect. But I think how you were taught about these boundaries and whether there's been extreme violations of them in cases of abuse, especially sexual abuse, is again the far end of the continuum. And then we can have all the way to no boundaries where the parents were like, it's a free for all. You know, you can do whatever you want, there's no supervision. Right. So 
we want that sort of somewhere in the middle as well so that the child is developing secure attachment and that they also have a strong sense of themselves and their value and that they can balance dependency with independency and they have an understanding of all of that. And so those things I think are important where boundaries are concerned that can influence you later on. I love how you just explained that. That's great. Oh, great. (laughs) It can be hard to explain those things. Yeah, no, you nailed it. That You nailed it. And you also did a great job of explaining that in your book. Another concept that you talk about in your book is one that I also use in my work is the concept of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And you have a list in your book of traits that equate to emotional intelligence. And I love your list. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot with people about how to measure their own emotional intelligence and how to assess a potential partner's emotional intelligence. And the one thing that I would add to your list is based on Daniel Goleman's work. He wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence. Are you familiar with his book? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. He's fantastic. And he talked about the capacity to delay gratification as a pretty reliable indicator of emotional intelligence. And I have found that clinically to be so true, that people who have the intuitive understanding that if you do this now, it'll benefit you later down the road, do so much better than people who are impulsive and sort of dive in and need and want things immediately. Have you found that to be true? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it relates back to what we were talking about with the falling in love and the limerence phase is that that's exactly what you're talking about. Because we're saying, if you can delay the gratification that yes, it feels really good, and you just want to float with it. But if you can <laughs> yes. you know, step back and really think things through and be more cautious and make sure that the rational part of your brain's online, that you're going to make a better decision. And so, yes, it's applicable to a lot of different areas of our lives. We know that emotional intelligence is important in work. It's definitely important in love. And I know that there's some research out and I can't quote the specifics of it. And I think it was Dr. John Gottman, who's done such a massive amount of couples research and relationship research is that emotionally intelligent husbands. And so we're saying emotionally intelligent men are often the key to having successful relationships. And their willingness and capacity to share what he calls the sphere of influence as well is a pretty reliable predictor. Yeah. So all these aspects of emotional intelligence seem to serve men well and that their wives tend to like them better (laughs) than if they don't have that emotional intelligence. So again, I just think that's great that you did a whole section on that. So how sex savvy are you? Let's take this week's sex IQ quiz and find out. Okay, it's time now for this week's Sex IQ Quiz. Question number one. In one survey, what percentage of women reported to having tried anal sex? Is it A, 3%, B, 10%, C, 40%, or D, 63%? The answer is C, 40%. In one survey, 40% of women admitted that they had attempted anal sex. Question number two. 
How often is it recommended that an individual be screened for sexually transmitted infections? Is it A, once a year, B, twice a year, C, once every other year, or D, once every month? The answer is A, once a year. If it's been over a year since you've been checked for sexually transmitted infections, or perhaps ever, if you've never been tested for sexually transmitted infections, I implore you to make that appointment. Question number three, speaking of sexually transmitted infections, which is the most common sexually transmitted infection? A, HPV, B, HIV, C, chlamydia, or D, herpes? The answer is A, HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection and one that often has no obvious symptoms. All the more reason to be screened. Question number four. For men who use lambskin condoms, they protect a man from A, sexually transmitted infections only, B, HIV only, C, pregnancy and STIs, or D, pregnancy only. The answer is D, pregnancy only. If you're out there using lambskin condoms as an alternative, please know you are likely protected from pregnancy, but you are not protected from contracting sexually transmitted infections. Question number five. What is the favorite sexual position throughout the world? Is it A, missionary position, B, doggy style, C, 69, or D, spooning? The answer is doggy style. This is reported throughout the world as the most popular sexual position. Question number six. What is the most watched type of porn? A, threesomes. B, MILF, M-I-L-F. I think you know what that means. C, lesbian or D, anal? The answer is C, lesbian porn, commonly known as girl on girl, is the most popular type of porn. Okay, next question. What percentage of people, when surveyed, reported having sex at work? A, 3%, B, 12%, C, 25%, or D, 33%? The answer is B, 12% of people surveyed admitted to having had sex in the workplace. Next question. Of those who admitted to having had sex at the workplace, which of the following was the most commonly reported location? Was it A, the boss's office, B, the stairwell, C, their own office, or D, the storage closet? The answer is D, the storage closet. If you've had sex at work and it was in the storage closet, let me know. If you've had sex at work and it was somewhere not listed here, let me know that as well. Final question for today's Sex IQ quiz. What is pegging? P-E-G-G-I-N-G. Is it A, 
Sex in the Car. B, another name for pole dancing. C, penetrating a man anally with a strap on. Or D, another name for doggy style. The answer is penetrating a man anally with a strap on. So now you know what pegging means. Let's get back to my interview with Dr. Marnie Feuerman. You have a section on the timing of sex in your book that I thought was just so apropos to my recent podcast episodes. Can you share some of your recommendations around that, Dr. Marnie? Sure. Yes, I'm so glad that you said that because that's true. And that's a sad thing. Also, I don't, that's not a good thing because then people are doing that so soon. They're having sex really soon and then they're getting hurt. They're finding that they haven't really seen if the relationship is going to progress and they've done that and they feel vulnerable doing that. And then the person, let's say, doesn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. And it is harder to have true intimacy because you are connecting on more of an emotional level with somebody that your relationship has emotional, what we call depth to it and how that happens, that is harder. It is easier to, to just jump in bed. And so I think especially for women, especially, if I can really drive this point home, I think women will do much, much better if they pull back more and don't have sex so readily. I think women have to understand that men will jump into bed, most men, I know I'm stereotyping here, but they will probably jump into bed with you as soon as you say the word. <laughs> that doesn't mean he values you. That doesn't mean he wants a future with you or wants to even see you for one more date. So I don't want women to confuse that. I just think they're setting themselves up for a bad situation. So I think women sometimes go at it wanting intimacy so they're having sex thinking they're going to get intimacy or get closeness with this person, but it doesn't pan out that way either. And so I think they're going to want to try that harder route that you just described, you know, that it's more about slowly getting to know each other, asking the right questions, seeing what the person's like, deciding whether or not they like them, if there's more than just the chemistry there. And so I do think the timing of sex is really important and it's to a woman's advantage to understand that and really exercise better judgment in that area. Well said. This leads to a section in your book where you present a list of dating do's and dating don'ts. And I think mm -hmm. it's a great list. May I read a couple of them? Yeah, go ahead. So you say, do be clear in your head about your dating goals. Are you just looking for a hookup or do you want to find a long-term relationship or marriage? Do make sure your life is fulfilling in many other ways, independently of your status or your romantic life. Do assume that you will have dates that go poorly and that you will meet people who you are not attracted to or are wrong for you. Do decide if you prefer to be chased or if you don't mind doing the chasing. I love that one and I'll tell you why just a moment. Do pay attention to actions much more than words. This list goes on and on. I think it's a great list. Would you like to speak to any of those or any other do's? And then we'll move on to the don'ts. 
Yeah, sure. Thanks for saying that about the list, because I think I'm clear in there about, you know, these are things that you can think about beforehand, that you can, you know, maybe have the right mindset when you're approaching dating. I think people get so tied up in expectations. They can also get extremely excited after, let's say, a first date that goes really well, which I think is great if that date goes well. But I think you have to be really open to sort of like anything could happen here and that's okay. And that when I'm going out on a date, my mindset is more like I'm interested to meet a cool person. And I hope this is a person that I like more so than, oh, I hope this is the one, you know, I think you're just putting so much pressure on yourself. Yes. And not just hope, but this needs to be the one. Like this has to be the one. That sense of desperation, I think, colors everything and it undermines our judgment for sure. Right, exactly. I treat a guy now, every date he has, every girl he talks to online, it's like she has to be the wife. (laughs) It's like... Okay, it's her. I haven't met her yet, but it's her. And then meet the next one. Okay, now this one for sure is got, you know, and it's just it's more about his wish to be in a partnership than it is about the person that he's interacting with. Right. I mean, I think people are more tied up in the fantasy and it's not the reality right. and you'll be disappointed over and over. So that's another reason why I emphasize, you know, having a fulfilling life and you know, lots of friends, hobbies, interests, a job you like, that's going to help you feel like you can stay in balance and you're not putting all your emotional eggs in that one dating basket. <laughs> so, You are correct. In fact, I'm in my office right now and I have this big phallic pillar in the middle of my <laughs> office that is a structural beam, but it just so happens to be perfect because uh-huh. it's phallic. And on it, I have listed five things, same-sex friendships, family of origin, vocation, romantic love, and hobbies. And I think we need to spread our resources and investment among those five things and not ever put all of our eggs into any one of those things, whether it be work or a hobby or a relationship. I think we need to diversify. Right. And that's good advice. Even after you find the one, you know, we don't want to completely burden one person with all of our needs. So it doesn't bode well for that either. So you may as well start developing that early because you're always going to need to be balanced like that. Absolutely. Let me move on to some of your dating don'ts, okay? Sure. Don't be quick to blame yourself if he acts like a jerk. Don't date if you are not in a good place emotionally or in the midst of a personal crisis. Don't buy into the soulmate mentality. I love that one. Don't date people who are geographically undesirable. (laughs) Don't get caught up in overanalyzing the date or wondering what he thinks of you. Instead, ask yourself, what do you think of him? I love that, Marnie. I love it. (laughs) Great. I say that to my patients. They're so worried about whether the other person liked them. I'm like, well, did you like him? Like you get a say too. You have choice in this too. It's not all about whether he likes you. One of the recommendations on your dating do's list that I want to kind of circle back to is decide if you prefer to be chased or if you don't mind doing the chasing. And I think that's so important because I don't think people necessarily know the answer to that question. And I help a lot of people explore what I call their arousal template or what others have called their sexual script or erotic script. And knowing and having access to whether you 
for to be pursued or do the pursuing is really important because it manifests in an erotic context. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not as well versed on that, but I think that's great information and it makes a lot of sense. Right? Like in the bedroom, do you prefer to be more passive or more dominant? You know, I ask all of my patients, I take a sexual history and I ask them if you had to be on a sex island for a weekend and it was a free trip, you could go to some beautiful tropical place and you had to sign up for a role and you only had two choices. You could either be the dominant one or the submissive one. You could either be the so-called, you know, master or slave or top or bottom. And I don't mean literally in terms of BDSM. I just mean in terms of like being the one in charge or being the one to kind of lay back and let things happen. And I make all of my patients answer that question. Right. I think that's great information because that kind of thing is not going to change. So if you don't mind being the aggressor, the pursuer, the person who takes charge more, whether it's in the bedroom or the one who seems to plan all the dates, whatever it is, again, it's not right or wrong. It's just what's right or wrong for you. And making sure that you know, that's the key. Like you said, it's not right or wrong. It's just, you better know it for yourself. Right. Because that could cause a lot of problems later on in a relationship. Because if you suddenly are going, hey, I'm really tired of this, you know, this is not for me, you're going to be in trouble. So I would say getting a sense of that early, what is right for you? If you like more traditional gender norms or what, fine, then just make sure you are with a compatible person who agrees with that and feels the same way. I had recently two women describe the same scenario on a date, two independent dates with two different men. And one found the behavior to be sexy and the other found it to be a total turnoff. So a patient of mine went on a date and her date was very assertive. He decided what wine they were going to drink. He ordered the appetizers. He didn't check in with her around what her preferences were. After the day, he said, now we're going to take a walk, right? He was just very much planning. And she said he was a total asshole. And then another woman went on a date and said, my date decided what kind of wine we were going to drink and basically told me the same story. And she had a very different reaction. She said, he was so confident. And so sexy. He's such an alpha. I'm like, made me totally want to have sex with him. <laughs> right. Exactly. I am not surprised by what you're saying. And so, again, that's a guy for a certain person, like a certain woman, but it may not be for you. And that's okay. One of the last things I want to talk about with you is how men who are married and have a lover or lovers talk about their wives to manipulate women into feeling sorry for them. You have a list in your book. You say that men say, I'm not in love with her anymore, or she never wants to have sex, or she doesn't take care of herself, or she's gained weight, or she's a nag, or she doesn't appreciate me, or she's mentally ill, or I would add physically ill with some sort of chronic illness. I agree with you. (laughs) And the women I talk to who are in relationships with married men have used every single one of these and more as justifications. Yes. Yes. Anything you want to add about that or any kind of insights or? Yeah, I just want women to be aware of these common things that 
men will say and that if they're reading it, they're thinking, oh my gosh, I heard that one, you know, if they're reading the book. I don't want them to be fools. I don't want them to waste their lives and wait and wait and wait. What I generally would say is that, you know, if you are an affair partner, there should be really definitive plans that this guy has to leave the marriage or he's in the process of divorce and that it happens relatively quickly. Year after year won't go by. And this is what I've heard. You've probably heard this before where it's like a year, two years, three years, and they're still hearing these same types of excuses. Right. Or my kid's graduating this year, so I don't want to disrupt the family. Or I want to wait until my dad dies. Whatever, right? Yeah. Kicking the can down the road. Yes. And then the longer the woman invests in that relationship, then it's like they think, well, I'm in it so long. I have to see if it pans out and if it works out. And so those women really concern me, really worry me. So I just want women to understand what's going on again with them to really make a conscientious choice here to understand that there's a good chance they're being fooled they're being manipulated they're being taken advantage of or used it's rare although i'm sure it does happen where everything works out just great <laughs> i've seen it i've seen it for sure yeah it's generally the rare i would say very rare exception to the rule yes i agree i agree I want people to just be very careful about these choices that they're making in love and relationships and that this often isn't a good one. Good. You have a list in your book of types of married men. You break it down as the long distance lover, the personality disordered, the non-monogamous, the addict, the hot mess, the straight up avoider. <laughs> and then I would add the gaslighter. You do address gaslighting in your book in that same chapter. I would add that as like a specific, particularly manipulative type of married guy. I love these. How did you come up with these? Thanks. Oh boy. I think a lot of different places, just research, reading a lot, my experience, you know, working both with individuals, working with couples, seeing sometimes even husbands who are checked out and emotionally unavailable. I just noticed a lot of similar traits. There's a lot of things that these men do that put up barriers to intimacy. Either it's something within them and their personality or behavior, but they're checked out. I think I just clustered some of the common traits and things I was seeing to kind of group them together. Yeah, I love your titles. They really speak for themselves. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe a little bit of humor in there as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, how can people find you, Dr. Marnie, if they want to work with you or find out more about you? Sure. They can go to Dr. Marnie online, which is D-R-M-A-R-N-I-O-N-L-I-N-E. And they can find me and also links to different resources I have and where to contact me, see me, whatever it is. It's all on that website. Great. And once again, your book is called Ghosted and Breadcrumbed. And how can people get a copy of your book? They can get it pretty much everywhere books are sold and certainly Amazon. And it's available paperback, Kindle and audio. Great. Well, it was such a treat talking with you. And I hope that we can connect in real life, maybe at a professional meeting or we can collaborate in some way because I, I really love your style and your approach. Well, thank you. I'd love that.
Great. Well, Dr. Marnie Feuerman, licensed psychotherapist, nationally recognized expert in relationships, and author of Ghosted and Breadcrumbed. Thank you for joining me on Sex Savvy. Thank you. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.